really is something that I'm very, very excited about, this, this launch and the special issue itself, because it's been four years in the making. Um, and any of you that are Facebook friends with me or Twitter followers will know that I've been shamelessly promoting both this issue and this event uh, over the course of the week. I've been trying to do the whole 21st century kind of scholar thing of getting the work out, which we think is a really important uh, academic contribution to a really important set of debates, to networks of scholars that might be interested in this. So I've been, apologies if, uh, if you've been bombarded by, uh, by my Twitter feed. Um, I do think, though, before we get into it, I need to work on my, uh, my target audience and how I reach my target audience as the only person up until yesterday to have commented on my Facebook post was my mother, <laughs> who said, um, looks good, Dan, kiss, kiss. <laughs> uh, not really the sort of impact that I was looking to have, but, you know, I'll take it. Anyway, so the issue is entitled Student Activism in an Era of Decolonization, and I think it's quite timely insofar as it builds upon a resurgence of interest in student activism that's uh, occurred since the Roads Must Fall and the Fees Must Fall movements in South Africa, um, whom we have some participants of which in the room today, um, as well as the Decolonize the Academy movement in the Global North, in many institutions in the Global North. Now, when Luke and I started working on our doctorates on student activism, we were actually interested in a different tradition of student protest and kind of keyed into a different tradition, which was the sorts of activism and protests that were going on on a lot of African campuses over the last 30 years that has largely been part of, uh, associated with issues of structural adjustment and the emaciation of African universities. But these two traditions of student activism do have some similarities. First, I think one of the key uh, shared characteristics are student belief, shared belief in their notion of political agency, their sense of political agency, that they can produce change. And the second is the fear often held by institutional and political authorities that, about these young people, that these young people somehow, in Mahmoud Mandani's words, can be catalysts to get other groups to act. A contention of this special issue is that to understand the power and shape of student identities today requires appreciating where these identities come from. Hence, this special issue explores some of the foundational moments of student activism in late colonial and early post-colonial Africa in the 1960s and 1970s. This was the era of decolonization, when university education was deeply embedded in dominant ideas of state building. Now, despite that, the state of the existing literature on this particular era is quite thin. Instead, scholars have focused on other periods. Historians of nationalism have often focused on the university experiences of anti-colonial nationalist leaders such as Jomo Kenyatta or uh, Kwame Nkrumah that have spent time in London or Paris or, in fact, the ideas of the West African Students' Union, which was founded in London in 1925. At the other end of this period, scholars of politics have often looked at, understood student activism in the 1980s and 1990s as a kind of key constituency within processes of democratization and as a kind of a response to structural adjustment politics. The literature that does exist on this particular period has tended to emphasise two really important things. First, that these student protests have often been an example of the beginning of the turn of post-colonial governments to more authoritarian um, forms of governance. So the beginning of this process uh, of this kind of more, more authoritarian government. Second, these, these student activism during these years has often been seen as contests between elites, political elites that are in power, 
and students as proto-elites. So notions of elite contestation and student activism as being a process of elite formation. Now, I think these two points are really important, but the literature on this era has often lose sight of a few things. First, it often loses sight of the content of student politics themselves, and in particular, the radical ideas, the radical leftist and pan-African ideas that often animated politics in this era and student protest in this era. Second, the, that sort of literature doesn't really appreciate the, what, the implication that these ideas had and these practices of student had on the lives of student leaders after they left university. So viewing students only as a constituency as students doesn't appreciate their role as elites if they did go on to become elites. Third, this literature tends not to understand the differences between how post-colonial states responded to these protests and the variance of the the kind of type of state-society relationship that exists. And lastly, this sort of literature has often been largely national in focus and ignore the hundreds of thousands of African students that during the Cold War studied at campuses abroad on both sides of the Iron Curtain as well as across the Third World. So what our, what our special issue tries to do in the round, cumulatively the gestalt of the special issue, we try and address, open up three lines of inquiry th- around three themes. First, we try and expand the idea of higher education as a process of elite formation in post-colonial a- Africa and explore the implications of this. By using oral histories, many of the papers track how, these, how student politics shaped people's aspirations and informed people's life and career tra- trajectories. These were people who often went on to play critical roles in the foundation of opposition parties in the 1980s. So in understanding those opposition parties and the genesis of the, their ideas, appreciating student activism in the 60s and 70s is quite important. Second, these papers consider the relations of ambivalence that developed between African states and university students um, in this era and explores the varied ways in which student activism and state power came to be mutually constitutive of one another during this period. And third, some of the papers in this uh, issue track the transnational dimensions of student activism and chart the ways in which experiences, student experiences on com- campuses across the world shaped political ideas differently, created different notions of praxis and and led to the establishment of different forms of diaspora networks of solidarity. So those are the kind of key conceptual contributions that this special issue seeks to make. And in terms of empirically, the papers within this special issue also add to very specific country histories on literature on Angola, on the Democratic Republic of Congo, on Kenya, on Niger, on Sudan, on Uganda, on Zimbabwe, on South Africa, and on a diverse array of African experiences in East Germany. So that's what the special issue in the round attempts to do. And before moving on to the actual three of the papers, so you'll get a taste of three of the papers, one from Luke, one from Marcia, and one from myself. Uh, I, I just, before we move on to that, want to say a, a very, very heartfelt thanks, first of all, to Africa Journal uh, for uh, guiding us through this process and accepting our papers. Uh, so thank you, Wale, as our editor. Uh, thank you, Stephanie, as our editor as well. And also thanks to Deborah who's been key in this as well. And also um, thanks to David Pratton, who sadly can't be here, but who was important in linking us up initially into the journal. Um, secondly, I'd also like to... This, this, the workshop, we had a workshop around which these papers were based um, in 2016, which 
was held here in Oxford at the Department of International Development, and we had some really critical um, and, and important feedback. Um, so I'd just like to say thanks to Miles Lama, who isn't here, David Anderson, who also isn't here, but for those who are here, for Joss Alexander, who gave some really great feedback, and for Simulkai Chigudu, who gave an absolutely excellent keynote speech. So thank you to you all as well. So lastly, to say, go, go and read the special issue, please. And make sure that um, I'm not just tweeting to my mother, but that it's actually hitting the academic audiences that I'd like it to hit. <laughs> um, and now over to Luke. Uh, hi, everybody. Uh, my name is Luke Melchiore. I'm an assistant professor in the Department of Political Science at Universidad de los Andes in Bogota, in Colombia. Uh, I co-edited uh, the special issue with Dan, and I co-wrote uh, the introduction. Uh, I think thematically, my paper fits neatly into the second theme that Dan uh, spoke about. Uh, in that, I think it's primarily interested in charting the ambivalent relationship that developed between post-colonial African states and university students in the initial post-colonial decades. My paper's case study is Kenya, and I want to start today's talk where I began the paper, and that is with a coup attempt uh, in August of 1982 against the Kenyan government of Daniel Arap Moy. Now, the coup attempt fails, and Moy uses this opportunity to attempt to consolidate his power and marginalize his opponents. So he overhauls the security forces, he reconstitutes the Air Force, and significantly for the purposes of my paper, he initiates a major crackdown against the University of Nairobi. Now, for those of you familiar with Kenyan political history of this period, this will come as no surprise, because by the late 1970s, the University of Nairobi and its constituent Kenyatta College had come to be a center, an important center, of national dissent within the country. In fact, in the lead-up to the coup, uh, the tensions between the state and university faculty and university students had began to rapidly deteriorate. So you have the student union being banned in October of 1979. Remember, Moy comes to power in August of 78. You have the academic staff union being deregi uh, deregistered in 1980. And then it starts to get nuts because Moy starts to literally start imprisoning both student leaders and leftist faculty, right? So when university students decide to take to the streets to celebrate the premature and ultimately inaccurate news that the Moy regime had fallen, their reputation as enemies of the state is cemented. And so in October of 1982, it's not surprising that Moy makes a public address. And in this public address, he announces that the university is going to be disbanded, right? And here's what he says. He asserts that he wanted, that the government, and I'm quoting here, wanted a new university with no prospect henceforth that it could lie in our midst as a source or instrument of destruction, end quote. In that same speech, Moy singled out university students specifically for criticism, arguing that the university, and this is a real quote, by the way, had been brought, and I'm quoting now, brought into disrepute by a student body which proved itself pathetically vulnerable to the crudest stupidities of dialectical subversion, end quote. I still have no idea what that means. Uh, <laughs> these remarks suggested that Moy simply did not aspire to create a new university, but that he wanted to create a new kind of university student, right? One that was loyal and obedient to his regime. And a big part of this agenda is the focus of my paper, right? It's the introduction in May of 1984 of the National Youth Service Pre-University Training Program, right? This is a mandatory, a mandatory program 
of 14 weeks of paramilitary training that every university student, man and woman, had to go through prior to arriving uh, at, at Kenyan universities, right? And the idea with this was that the program would help to facilitate the transformation of prospective university students into responsible and disciplined citizens who would offer their loyalty to Moy's regime. In practice, the key central argument of my paper uh, is that the scheme had unintended consequences, right? Instead of fostering uh, obedient and loyal university students who were ideologically committed to Moy's political project, the program served to further alienate these students from the ruling party, helping to politicize a significant portion of them who, by the time they arrive on campus, confront the Moy regime with some of its most defiant political challenges of this period. Essentially, the article's arguing that the NYSPUT played a crucial and hitherto unacknowledged role in shaping student activism at the University of Nairobi during the latter half of the 1980s. And I highlight a number of ways in which I believe uh, that this was the case. Right? One of them is, for many student recruits, the camp is experienced as um, un an unwarranted punishment. Right? This creates a sense of grievance among them, and it's around these grievances that they begin to develop collective solidarity, and through which a small but vocal core of these student recruits come to embrace oppositional politics. So that's one. Two, uh, the program unwittingly provides these students with the time and space to construct and nurture, and nurture durable social bonds, i.e. they become buddies, right? Among, and they begin to refine, in some cases, their political ideas um, prior to their arrival on campus. So these bonds come to be utilized once students arrive on campus and they begin to politically organize. Finally, there's a kind of haphazard political education that Canu's offering in these afternoon lectures at the camp, right? And so you got a bunch of Nairobi bigwigs coming and they're talking about the history of the ruling party, development strategies, yada, yada, yada. But the important part of this is it gives these student recruits a kind of novel, unprecedented opportunity to confront the government, to criticize the government publicly. Often for the first time in their lives, they're able to have this opportunity, right? And so two things happen as a result of this. One, students see who their leaders should be, right? They're able to identify the brave ones, the most firebrand ones, and a lot of these guys kind of develop a reputation before they arrive on campus, and this ensures their political success once they arrive. The second part of this is for a lot of students, it exposes the ideological shortcomings of the Kanu regime to them. And so in some ways, I guess what I'm arguing in the paper is that while the NYSPUT effectively serves to discipline and punish the bodies of student recruits, it's guilty of disregarding their minds. And the consequences of that I'm going to talk a little bit about uh, later in the presentation. So there's a lot of stuff i got to skip obviously, because it's a long paper. Um, the first part of the paper kind of looks over or situates the emergence of NYSPUT within a broader history of nation building within Kenya, but also the broader history of student activism within Nairobi. The argument I'm making is that the NYSPUT needs to be understood as the, as the kind of moist state responding to how do we deal with this problem of student unrest and dissidence, right? And this is the solution that they devise. In the second part of the lecture, 
I look at the actual experience of the camp from the perspective of uh, the student recruits themselves. I was very, very lucky to interview a number of them, and a lot of this stuff is fascinating. One of the key parts of this section of the paper is that students experience this as a punishment, and one of the reasons that they do is because the people overseeing these camps are afandas. Right? They are regular NYS servicemen. And so what a lot of these student recruits say is, I did all of this work, I came from the rural areas, I was the best student, I succeeded, and I'm being treated like, and one of the students said this, a school dropout. In other words, I'm being punished for excelling. These guys who don't have anywhere near my educational achievements are able to are kind of play the tune and I gotta follow it. And they resented that. Anybody who knows Kenyan politics probably knows Miguna Miguna. He's one of the guys I interviewed. Um, he's still a kind of pillar of oppositional politics in Kenya, and this is what he had to say about his treatment at the camp. This is a direct quote. This was a, the worst of it. These afandas are subjecting you to this sort of dehumanizing treatment, and these people did not finish elementary school, cannot speak English. All they know is shouting, and for them they get satisfaction of having to do this to someone who presumably performed better than them and progressed to A-levels, end quote. Right? So you get this sense where the poor treatment of these student recruits makes them begin to have profound questions, not only about the camp, but about the government that organized it and sanctioned its conditions. And so what ends up happening is the experience of the NYSPUT left many student recruits feeling more alienated from and antagonistic towards uh, the state and the ruling party under Moy than they had been when they arrived. Uh, in the fourth part of the... the uh, essay, which I'll talk, I'll spend the rest of the time talking about, the kind of exciting part, it's when these student recruits arrive at Nairobi. And initially it looks like this reform is working. There's almost like a 10-month period where there are no protests. Um, then in early February, three students are uh, expelled and another five have their uh, scholarships revoked. And students go nuts. They start boycotting classes. Um, they, they start to initiate a high court injunction against the expulsion, and they're demanding that the state explain these expulsions. And one of the shocking things for the regime is that at the heart of these protests that emerge in February of 1985 are these NYS graduates. So on February 10th, students organize a non-denominational prayer meeting because they think that there's no way the university administration will stop a prayer meeting, and they're right. And NYS graduates decide they want to dress up in their NYSPUT uniforms and, and do a guard of honor on campus that is going to be inspected by uh, a student leader by the name of Mwandawira Maganga. So essentially, a, normally a guard of honor would be inspected by the head of state or a high-ranking military official. In this case, they want it to be inspected by a dissident student leader. And the symbolism here is hard to miss, right? It's the argument being that the university has come to be a state unto itself. In other words, that the students no longer recognize state authority. When Maganga comes to speak, he's almost immediately hauled off and arrested, and police and the GSU begin to literally beat on the students that are attended at this meeting. But the students fight back. Now, in the aftermath of this, you got policemen injured, you got students injured, and one student dies. But even this clash, 19 students are arrested after, universities closed, a month later, these students are told that they have to return their NYS uniforms. Remember, they were given these uniforms as a token of appreciation for how well they did in the camp. The only way they get readmitted is if they give back the uniforms. Guess what they do to the uniforms? They start marching around Kenyatta College in military drills that they learned at NYS 
and they burn the uniforms at the main gate of Kenyatta College, right? These two events make the Moy regime realize for the first time, shit, we're in trouble here. This, this may be having counterproductive um, outcomes. And as one student put it to me, this proved that NYS, and I'm quoting again, had become a space where you are radicalized. By the time you were coming out of NYSPUT, you know who the enemy is, i.e. the Kenyan state. After Bloody Sunday, which is what the, the, uh, the February 10th event was called, Moy realized that he had a monster on his hands, end quote. Right? So there's a momentary lull in protest, but in 1987, uh, Wafula Buke, who's an NYSPUT graduate, comes to be a legendary student leader. He is elected in an unprecedented landslide as the head of the student union. Remember, in his first year as a student, before he's elected, he, pro he leads a protest against the American bombing of Libya that gets national press coverage. And here's what he said to me, and I'm quoting again. I can imagine if you just came to the university straight from home, you can take a little while before you make your way around. But remember, I organized a demo in the first year. I had never been in Nairobi since I was born. The first time I am landing in Nairobi University, I am conscious and confident enough to organize a demo in solidarity with another country out there. The reason was because my foreplay had been done in the NYSPUT, end quote. Right? Days after he ascends to power with this radical cabinet, they have a public kamakunji, a, a political meeting, where they essentially say three things. One, that they want to ban all ethnic associations on campus because they think it's a source of disunity. Two, they want to stop government-funded student trips abroad with Moy because they see it as a way that the government is distributing patronage to students. And three, they demand that their student colleagues become more active in national political debates. Two days later, they're rounded up in the middle of the night on campus and the entire cabinet is arrested. Students respond in the absence of their union leadership by literally clashing with state forces over the next couple of days. 43 of those students are expelled. The university is closed again. The student union is banned and will continue to be banned for almost the next 10 years. And for the first time ever, Moy says, we're going to introduce user fees. You're going to have to start paying to go to this university. Now, and Bouquet uh, is, is, remains in prison for the next five years. So this is a dramatic event. Now, with over 20 university closures between 1970 and 1990, perhaps no university in Africa was more disrupted by student unrest during this period than the University of Nairobi. So in some respects, you can say, well, the November 1987 protests fit a predictable pattern, a predictable cycle of protest in Kenya. But I'm making the argument in the paper that the widespread popularity of the newly elected SANU leadership in conjunction with their explicitly progressive political agenda demonstrates the unprecedented sense of unity and anti-regime sentiment that had come to mark Kenya's young generation of university students during this period. Right? And I think the only way that we can understand these developments is if we take seriously the experiences of the NYSPUT. Because against the government's best laid plans, the Moi regime's decision to implement the NYSPUT, which was designed to rein in dissidents of these very students, had produced the opposite effect. Right? It plays a significant role in fostering the creation of an unprecedentedly united, militant, and mobilized student mass that was unafraid to publicly challenge the Moi regime. Thank you very much.